I'm Mary O'Driscoll and welcome to the podcast series Climate Emerge Gen Z. I'll be looking at the challenges posed to the climate movement here in Edinburgh and around the world. I'm here to learn about and discuss the most important issues we face as we transition to a more sustainable society. My first ever guest on this podcast is David Somerville, former sustainability advisor to Edinburgh University, convener for Transition Edinburgh, secretary for the Shrub Co-op. He is also actively involved in Scottish Communities Climate Action Network, Community Energy Scotland and the Peace and Justice Centre. What a CV. When I speak to him, I feel as though I'm studying something environmental at uni and getting a one-on-one lecture. He has been a climate activist for such a long time that his knowledge on anything environmental feels infinite to a novice like myself. He is committed to building a greener society and he uses his position to connect climate groups all over Edinburgh and Scotland, recognising that each group is working towards a common goal, so we ought to lift each other up as we attempt to reach it. How are you doing, David? I'm well. Um, I've had a nice weekend away in Europe. Um, oh, really? Um, uh, metaphorically. Oh. Um, where um, I participated in uh, the uh, Global Eco Village Network European oh, uh, gathering yeah. at the, for the weekend. It was just great fun. Oh, really? And, um, wow. All, all so inspiring because there's lots of young people leading on different initiatives all over Europe. That's great stuff. So I'm buzzed up from that. So that's very nice. Um, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your role as convener of Transition Edinburgh? So I came to Scotland to study the College of Art in Edinburgh in, in the architecture school. I've always had an interest in design and, and so on, but I got very distracted campaigning <laughs> against Torness Nuclear Power Station when I, oh, when I was wow. here in, okay. in the 70s. Cool. And uh, th- that distracted me sufficiently that I got more interested in energy politics uh, mm-hmm. and so on. And uh, for a long while, for five years, I was working in a community energy project in Glasgow. Okay. Um, and then the job of energy manager at the University of Edinburgh came up and uh, that meant less traveling and so on. And it was a fascinating time. Mm-hmm. And for, I was 27, nearly 30 years um, as energy manager, environmental manager, um, and then eventually a university sustainability advisor. And wow. one of the really exciting things that came up in that time in the 2007-2008 um, was an initiative which caught the attention of students at the university uh, and some staff entitled Transition Towns. And he, with um, the People and Planet Society, crafted a, um, an idea for Transition Edinburgh University about 2008 and um, over one summer uh, we got a small grant from the what was then the climate challenge fund to uh, prepare a feasibility study as to see whether rather than just their climate challenge fund vision of it being for a neighborhood by as in bounded by a a geographic streets or village or town or island instead a community of interest And we made a bid, students made a bid, and we got a grant of nearly a third of a million pounds uh, for Transition Edinburgh University in over nearly two years. 
God. Uh, this was this was one of a number of initiatives that were sparked by this idea that um, Rob Hopkins and Ben Brangwin and a few others had started in in Totnes. Transition towns are um, determinedly grassroots initiatives where we've had enough of the politicians, whether it was Tony Blair or Gordon Brown saying, oh yes, this is the most important thing. Climate is very important and we'll take it to the heart of government. And then they carry on as usual. Right. Here, Rob Hopkins was saying, look, we've just got to do it ourselves. Let's work out what we can do. And by talking to our neighbours, um, we can actually uh, start taking some control o- over this huge challenge. So Transition Edinburgh ran for a couple of years. It was really inspiring because undergraduates uh, and uh, recent graduates would be working on this project and they would go and knock on laboratory doors, on office doors at academics, saying, there seems to be a bit of a problem. Um, what can we do about it? And it was amazing how that unpacked a lot of ideas, a lot of interest from across the, the campus. Wow. And uh, this had a, a lasting impression on the university administration as well, because they were, and, and I was part of the administration then, we were not really sure how to take these things forward. And we realized that you've got to have a series of conversations, got to work out, have some vision about what, what's our vision at that time for 2030. Yeah. And uh, it was really very rewarding to, to have th- th- that. And in fact, for the university that gave rise in 2013 to the Department for Social Responsibility and Sustainability. Now, oh, wow. I was at that time university sustainability advisor. Mm-hmm. We, the, the university recruited a new director and for that new department, which was separate from estates and buildings. So it wasn't just oh. boys and girls hauling the trash. It was actually <laughs> helping the university determine how it was going to be and how it was going to move forward and, and account for itself in terms of social responsibility. Wow, that's incredible. Are there other universities that do that now or was that the first of its kind? Uh, Overwhelmingly, uh, most of the um, higher education institutions and and, uh, universities and colleges have still got their uh, sustainability department or or office stuck in estates and buildings. Uh, It's only a a small number. Uh, University of Manchester, which is equally an enormous university, has got a, a separate initiative with a vice principal responsible for social responsibility. Okay. So there is, there, by no means the only one, but there are now 20, more than 20 people employed in that team of social responsibility and sustainability. Wow. So, but that's the old thing. And I was, <laughs> I'm glad to say I, I, I stepped back. Um, I, I was um, past retiring and near retiring age. So I stepped back in 2016 okay. and I've, been working with the team um, that's made this network of individuals and groups across Edinburgh who've gathered together under this banner of uh, Transition Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a transition initiative. We're in Rob Hopkins' early uh, book um, was a transition handbook, talked about a 12-step program, okay. a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous when you need to wean yourself off uh, alcohol. In this case, we need to wean ourselves off 
uh, dependence on oil, on right. fossil fuels, which wow. are so problematic. Yeah. And the early framing was very much concerned that we were potentially going to be hitting peak oil and oil depletion okay. would be a, a challenge to our civilization as we've known it. And so now, of course, there's very much clearer evidence that we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is we've tried to lay the foundations, uh, raise awareness and, and lay the foundations for a low carbon society. We've consistently um, run public events uh, and increasingly over the last years, uh, maybe monthly public events. Um, which are on a number of topics, sometimes showing a film or uh, inviting somebody um, who, who's got a particular, um, a visitor who's got a particular story to tell or whatever. And we've done these under the, the, the usual range of themes on food, food sovereignty, food growing, mm. um, where does our food come from, mm. um, quality of food. Um, we've had it on transport. We've looked at built environment, the, the impact of climate policies on our buildings, on our, on our urban infrastructure in Edinburgh and around Edinburgh. We've also looked at encouraging people to consider staycations instead of flying and so on, a whole load of different things. Okay, so how have these things that you've been working on, have they made an impact in policy and at a kind of governmental level or a council level, have any of these managed to these webinars and all of this work that you're doing, has it got as far as that or is it still in a lot of the cases at a communication stage with so, councils? So, all during this time, mm -hmm. um, there have been some initiatives mm -hmm. at a national level, at a Scottish level, okay. to provide more opportunities for citizens and the community organisations to have a say in policy making. There were earlier acts, but in 2015, the Community Empowerment Act was passed by the Scottish Parliament to encourage some empowerment for uh, citizens and citizen-led groups. Okay. And so we have engaged our local authority, the City of Edinburgh Council, mm -hmm. um, over these years. Yeah. Um, in 2017, we were invited to help the council and work in the four localities which were established the city is divided into four quarters, city centre and southeast, mm -hmm. southwest, northwest and northeast, uh, taking in many of the 40 or 50 um, community council areas. Mm -hmm. We were invited to help open up the agenda for what was necessary, what was going to be useful in the locality improvement plans which are come about. And, and the, the local authority were obliged to, to publish um, under the 2015 Act. Locality improvement plans were meant to identify what the main concerns were and establish a, a pathway to acknowledging and addressing these problems. Now, if you ask local people, uh, the, the way our democracy has worked in, the, in these last decades is that that they will say, well, we've got cracked pavements or the, the road needs mending or the potholes or, mm. um, or the bins uh, aren't emptied properly. Mm. Um, and it's quite difficult for people to take a, um, a slightly bigger picture. Yeah. So we were invited to um, and, and, and held a series of exhibitions and public meetings in 2017 mm. where we went to Greg Miller, um, to Westerhales, to Pilton, to, to, um, uh, to Leith, to, mm -hmm. to areas which are often 
a bit off the beaten track, mm. often occupied by less well-represented parts of our community yeah. and those who are experiencing deprivation and poverty. Mm-hmm. And we had some really uh, insightful meetings. Maybe 150 people participated in these series of wow. events. And they gave their feedback about what was important for people and planet, um, as well as as well as getting the recycling sorted and things like <laughs> yeah. that. Now, and, and that was offered to, into the local authority. I'm sad that it. I don't think many of the staff in the local authority were able to pick up on some of these ideas that that, that our citizen-led meetings had had identified. Mm. But that didn't stop us keeping engaging with the uh, vice chair of, and, and, and had a, for instance had a meeting on mobility in Edinburgh in 2018 okay. um, where um, we had it in the city chambers attended and, and, and addressed by the vice chair of the transport and environment committee of the local authority and so on and then another one with the planning convener looking at what sort of Edinburgh do we want in 2025 mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of our built environment now we've had these series of engagements with our with the City of Edinburgh Council, staff, officers, as well as elected uh, representatives, the councillors. Similarly, we were very involved in in uh, 2015 or even earlier um, in uh, the establishment of Edible Edinburgh as a as a food initiative across the city. Now, what we found is that it's quite difficult a time of austerity at a time of cuts in the local authority for those staff to get take on board uh, citizens ideas and right. what we've what we've done is respecting and you and, and in using the the processes that are available to citizens we've taken deputations to both the senior strategy uh, committee meeting and to the full council now things have been changing you'll have no, everybody will notice that Yes, in 2018, October, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a a special report on how to achieve the Paris Agreement uh, aspiration of of, of 1.5 degrees temperature limit of of the increase due to human burning of fossil fuels, particularly. Mm -hmm. And this said, we've got 12 years. They they were particularly anxious to emphasize the the, uh, dire situation that, that, that we're in. Yeah. Now a number of local authorities, a number of community organisations have um, then encouraged councils uh, the length and breadth of Britain to declare a climate emergency mm. and um, over two-thirds of all local authorities have now done this. It's quite extraordinary. Wow. So this is at local level yeah. and I'm sure that our patient advocacy for prioritising the climate um, has contributed to that. But in, on the 7th of February 2019, the City of Edinburgh Council uh, Senior Policy uh, Committee declared a climate emergency. Excellent. Um, now, in that case, it was a proposal by um, one of the seven Green councillors. But in many other local authorities, it's been the Labour group or the, or the Conservative group who have led that. So it's not a party wow. political issue. Okay. This is very interesting. It is, yeah. Um, local, local elected uh, councillors recognise that this is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, the term emergency suggests blue lights, um, 
needing to get to hospital, needing to take drastic action mm. immediately. It is, we felt that there wasn't quite enough oomph being put in behind this and that mm. they were thinking, oh, well, we, we've declared, it's all right, it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we went with um, others, with uh, youth climate strikers from Scottish Youth Climate Strike, okay. from Extinction Rebellion, Mm. Uh, we've le participated in deputations with Friends of the Earth Edinburgh. Um, we're working all the time to try and develop collaborative approaches to, to enable the, the, our politicians to be braver in t taking the decisions that are necessary yeah. to simplify things, to, to reduce our impact uh, um, and, and the associated greenhouse gas emissions um, to do with our um, everyday activities. So what are the key goals for Transition Edinburgh over the next year? So for ourselves, um, we have been asking, how can we get citizen voice at the table of the decision making? Mm -hmm. okay. In Glasgow, Extinction Rebellion Group disrupted the council meeting and uh, they were then, along with uh, about 20 other individuals, appointed on a, a working group which published last summer, you know, within months of the, them declaring a climate emergency, mm. a, 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 an action plan of initiatives that have, are necessary. For ourselves, we found that the approach taken by Edinburgh is remarkably um, slow um, and very, very risk averse. Mm. They have d established a, an Edinburgh Climate Commission, which is a sort of intermediary body with the great and good on it. And they're have published a wonderful, very interesting document, um, a guide to responding to the climate in the face of the COVID pandemic mm. in the, this summer. So it is, however, still manana manana. It's yeah. we'll, we'll we'll think about it. Now our concern is to try and raise the raise the temperature, raise the agenda more widespread among all sectors. Mm. We're obviously trying to advocate on behalf of citizens and citizen-led bodies like community councils, like poverty action groups, like fair rent groups um, across the city uh, who are all being impacted by both austerity, by the pandemic, and in due course by the, the, the challenge facing us all um, of climate disruption. Mm. Now, we're seeking further and faster, which is the term that Edinburgh Climate Commission used in, in their title, but it still was a discussion document. <laughs> um, so, and hardly anybody knows about it. So how can we raise it up? This is our priority. Mm. We've got an extraordinary chance. It's exactly one year from the postponed Conference of the Parties, the COP26 yeah. will be held in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And what we are wanting is as a ginger group if you like as uh, activists who have read a lot about these concerns these challenges the science of the issues both soil productivity carbon in on land carbon in the air carbon dioxide and nitrous oxides all these different scientific aspects mm -hmm. and many of us have read a great deal and everything is pointing to the need to accelerate the response yeah now, it's difficult when we've got the pandemic. Mm. It's extraordinarily challenging mm -hmm. um, when everybody is just reacting 
to a, a health care emergency. Yeah. But is this a harbinger of things to come? Is it possible that the incredibly swift response from the Treasury mm-hmm. to allocate billions of pounds to create money to, to pay people to uh, businesses to keep people employed is it possible that we could use some of these same techniques to address the climate emergency i think that this is a, a really important time when we need to not just build back as they call it mm. or build back better but we're wanting to bounce forward now we need to go forward to a, a society where we are less dependent on this spiral of growth economic growth at all costs mm. where values that are seeking to look at the well-being of individuals um, the well-being economy um, it should be taken as a priority rather than the gross development uh, gross domestic product the gdp yeah. as the priority now what's so interesting is that our own first minister last uh, year mm-hmm spoke in a TED talk about well-being economy nations. Scotland is now part of a network with Iceland and New Zealand, and just more recently with Wales, declaring that they are well-being economy nations. They are seeking to realign their national priorities, the ways that progress will be measured on citizens' well-being, not just pounds and pence. Now, this is a big change. And my, our feeling is that, that we can hopefully, in drawing on some of these concepts, well-being economy, of the Green New Deal, um, uh, our, our common home plan prepared by Commonweal, um, the Think and Do Tank in Scotland, by um, identifying and sharing ideas about community wealth building, the Preston model, which has been pioneered in the northwest of England, mm. to the opportunity to uh, the imperative of exploring the intersection between racism and, and and climate justice all of these things seem to us to be really important for us to um, explore so that we're able to to find some way to a sunny uplands mm-hmm. um, where um, there is less poverty less inequality mm. and we have addressed some of these challenges now this is deeply deeply transformational proposals that that if you analyze them moving from a a dig out a manufacture use throw away linear economy to a circular economy to to move from power of the haves to uh, recognizing the need to support the Mm have-nots these are all deeply countercultural to a, a culture which has grown up in the last few decades of me, mine. Mrs. Thatcher said mm. um, every man's duty is to, to, to put their elbow in, in, in their neighbor's eye um, to, to get on top of them. This is not the sort of future that many of us want. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. So we've got to find ways to show that this could be better, um, that this will be an What's so fascinating? I, I use this term, um, the COVID pandemic being a, a harbinger of things to come. Mm. Remember those first few weeks when everybody was at home, the air was clearer, um, you mm. could see for miles that the, the photochemical smog 
was dramatically reduced because there was so much, so little transportation around. These could be the sort of things that would benefit those who've got respiratory problems, um, who are dying now because we've got our overcrowded cities with one and a half ton metal boxes driving around in them, spewing Mm. out pollution. This is reducing the life lifetimes of individuals in our community. Mm-hmm. It's not fair, um, but it's, it's not good. So it, there's a lot of revisioning, uh, reimagining the future we want. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found huge comfort, inspiration, ideas from many quarters. The Transition Network uh, now uh, weaves its tender- tentacles right across the globe. And there are over 1,500 transition initiatives all over Britain, all over Europe, as far afield as Japan, oh. Australia, New Zealand, South America, and so on. Okay. It's and as transition the United States. So these are ideas whose time has come. And you know, there are some tremendous thinkers. Rob Hopkins recently, pub, uh, last year, published a book called From What Is to What If? Using the Power of Imagination. And he's encouraging us all to just really think about what is it that we want and try and work towards it. And say this Wednesday um, on the 11th of November coming up, um, there's a launch of of a a programme, particularly in England, because the Transition Network have won some funding from the National Lottery Community Fund um, for sharing among transition network groups in England and Wales some funding, about £200,000, um, funding to enable community-led initiatives to flourish as a response to COVID emergency. Wow. These are ideas where there is a co-benefits of many of the actions. Mm-hmm. Rather than tackling climate and tackling the climate emergency being seen as a, as a burden, as an on-cost, mm-hmm. we might see it as a net benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, we, could, we could see um, that investing in, in uh, home insulation and connectivity through broadband and so on, mm-hmm. uh, rather than building more roads, mm. um, which is so 19th century. <laughs> um, it, it's such an old concept. Of, we've got to have bigger, um, bigger, more tarmac. Now, that might actually have multiple benefits. It would mean less people dying of hypothermia. Mm. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a national scandal that we've got a much higher proportion of people dying in the winter months than in the summer months. True. And this is called cold-related deaths. And they do not have this epidemiological de- difference in, in Scandinavia. They are able to heat their homes uh, adequately. They've got good insulation and so on. And this, this is for me as an architect, you know, as a trainee mm. architect originally. I'm so aware that we have talked about it, but hardly moved the the dial on the standards that would be necessary Mm -hmm. to achieve warm, dry homes um, and uh, and secure homes. Now, that's just one example where investing in external insulation for uh, homes of uh, public housing, uh, of social housing and private housing would be a much better investment. It would create jobs. it, It would... Uh, create uh, warm homes mm. uh, and um, be enduring. Yeah. 
Wow. So a lot of the people or the groups that you've spoken about who would benefit from the well-being economy are the the more marginalised in our community. So a problem that we seem to have within the climate movement is that it's not hugely diverse, particularly in the UK, like a lot of it seems to be like quite white and middle class. What do you think we could do to bring marginalised groups' voices to the forefront of this conversation? It's such a good observation. It's such a a truism that uh, we don't know how lucky we are. And I think there are some huge parallels, uh, and that's why I support the call for global climate justice. Mm. Um, And we have signed up to um, the... Um, 350.org and others aspirations and we're one of the 100 Transition Edinburgh is one of the 100 signatories to the Justin Green recovery Mm -hmm. um, in Scotland the the letter, the coalition of groups which are not just uh, environmental groups, transition groups, Friends of the Earth groups these are right across the the spectrum Mm -hmm. uh, embracing um, faith groups, that those addressing poverty, the Scottish Poverty Alliance, mm. uh, that, that those are identified as marginalised mm. or as the less well represented. Yeah. Um, now, I think that in the same way that we've learned so much from Black Lives Matters and, and through the concept of intersectionality about yeah. uh, the interrelationship between the oppression of one is the oppression of, of all, mm. um, of the imperative to right injustices across the board will advance in many respects in in my view a, a, a common platform which is addressed at well-being for all now i'm i'm acutely aware that uh, in our city edinburgh the second financial capital in britain mm. fifth or sixth richest nation in the world mm. um, with huge capital flows flowing through the city of london but also through the city of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. We do recognise the city council, the Edinburgh partnership of all the public bodies, including NHS, police, universities and so on, have recognised that inequality is the biggest challenge mm-hmm. and give them their due, they're trying to focus on addressing inequality. But this is structural in the same way that structural racism absolutely debases undermines, demeans, is in the face of people of colour mm. and indigenous people in Britain and across the world every day of their lives. This, this is to do with issues of justice, to my mind. Mm. And, and so I think there are very close alignments. How to address this, though? It's mm. clear to me, um, and the advice we, that everybody takes is, it's no good us sitting in the city chambers or, or having things in the city chambers when people really haven't ever, ever been in the city chambers. We need to go to their communities. We need to explore and what we're talking about as hyper-local community hubs where um, one of the interesting, and this is, I'll go back to that uh, consultation and, and, and the engagement process we did in 2017 um, in the four localities. Mm. What would be useful, we asked? We'd like somewhere where we could gather, which wasn't full with canned music and trying to sell us things, which was a centre where um, we could we could meet each other and so on. Mm. This idea of a community hub where people can find their voice, 
find their friends, find like-minded people. Mm -hmm. This seems to be a way forward. And then we do need to recognize that if you are worried about your next meal, if you're worried about your partner losing their job uh, because they're they're unwell with COVID, Mm -hmm. if you're worried that that your children are um, being bullied at at, at school because of the pressures on all around them, then it is very difficult to lift your eyes to the horizon and to see one month ahead, let alone a few years ahead to where you want to be. But this is where actually, if you do ask people what's important, Oxfam Scotland asked people in preparing for something called the Humankind Index. They asked people in shopping centres, in community centres, in the street, they asked people what's important. They all said family, shelter, uh, secure job. These are simple things. Mm. These are not avaricious things. I want an, a, an, another car, a bigger jet, a private, mm. a private yacht or anything. And when it comes down to it, if you ask individuals one-to-one, what they're really wanting is that we want peace and tranquility amongst people. Mm. We want to be able to know that we can get up in the morning um, and not be hungry. Mm-hmm. These are really important things. Mm. And so we need to go out and those of us who, who are, have, have privilege are a part of a group who've, who've maybe had for a very long time um, because we're okay. We're all right, Jack. Mm-hmm. Instead of just going on and going to get the next bigger job or whatever it is, mm-hmm. if we are able to encourage each other to say, hmm, well, let's see if we can bring everybody along together. This is a different way than has been the, the unspoken way of being, of getting on, getting up, getting on top of other people mm-hmm. um, for the, since Mrs. Thatcher. And I do hope that, um, like so many things, we can see a, a pendulum swinging. Now, it may be that in the depths of this pandemic, of all the suffering and anxiety, the loss of jobs, the loss of income, mm-hmm. that we might see possibly the slowing down of, of this Uh, chasing the dollar and maybe uh, reflecting on the value of community and the recognition of of, a mutual aid can be very rewarding. I'm so aware that if you focus on those sort of things, that can also address some of the the nine global challenges that we're facing of of health, environment, climate, uh, and so on. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful. So another thing I was wondering is for someone who's not maybe a science expert or has experience in the environment sector or anything, what what could they do if they're feeling powerless and helpless? How could they be involved in the climate movement? Well, what I found is that um, through things which we first learned about in Transition Edinburgh University, the students were were looking out who's doing what where, Mm -hmm. finding out things like carbon conversations and then and, and also now um, climate literacy, carbon literacy. These are just ways that we can have face-to-face conversations in smaller groups, small, smaller study groups to demystify, to ground people in, in the, the simple science. And interestingly, just in the first weekend of the Scotland's Climate Assembly, which met last weekend of the 6th and 7th of, of uh, November, there were some very simple, short 15-minute clips um, shared by an expert panel 
um, of, of people who are sort of setting the scene. So I, I would commend those as an example of short, short um, clips which can explain the background to things, give pointers to ways forward on how not only individual changes might be beneficial, but also some system changes might be necessary mm. that, that um, we, can, we can start to see a way that empowers people instead of disempowers people. Yeah. Um, because it is a challenge. We do feel very disempowered. We mm. do feel many of us really at the end of our tether. We, we don't think we can make any difference. Mm. But we do live in a democracy. We, we, um, uh, I'm, for instance, this evening going to be, in the, and, and earlier this today, was speaking to um, my MSP with about 20 other people uh, on the call. We were uh, meeting with our elected representatives, asking them to prioritize these issues. Now, when um, it becomes normalized that the politicians, that the technicians, uh, that the civil servants see it as part of their normal process to be addressing this, rather than some freaky um, extra extra thing, mm. um, then people who have got other things primarily in, in their mind can think, oh, all right, I see, and I can do this, mm. and I can contribute. This is all part of a cycle of recovery, of regeneration, as opposed to a spiral of dismay and disruption uh, and so on. Okay, great. Um, and then I just had one more question for you. Um, in terms of sustainability, what would you like Edinburgh as a city to look like in 10 years' time, so 2030? Well, a lot of it would not necessarily be visible. The most important thing, in my mind, is social justice issues. Mm -hmm. We have had uh, a neoliberal hegemony. Mm. Uh, sorry, these are very fancy big words. <laughs> this is where the market, uh, commerce and industry, uh, and, and the market finance has been the, the determining factor, yeah. um, which has been deemed to be the only way it can work. Mm. Thereby, some people have got richer and richer. And so there has been a souking up all the way up to the very elite. At the time of uh, UK Uncut and Occupy movement, mm. there was great talk about the 1% and the 99%. Mm and that the 1% were taking all the wealth. Yeah. It's a tiny proportion. It's 0.001%. Mm. Now, I hope that that hidden thing would be readjusted so that there was more sharing of what we have yeah. in our wealthy society, mm -hmm. enabling people to live more rewarding lives, to be living in warmer homes, mm. to have a job which is doing constructive useful things like putting insulation on on buildings, changing the windows, uh, installing solar panels, all of these things are productive and creative and useful things yeah. instead of the emphasis at the moment on funny money, gambling and, and juggling money around and the rentier economy of, of extraction. I hope that even within this 10-year period to 2030, mm -hmm. um, we would be able to see a transformation of addressing social justice issue, but also environmental justice issues. Yeah. So we do not have our haves and have-nots in different parts of the city, where we have a, a greater sharing, a much lower carbon city, 
a city where walking and cycling um, is first, um, where it's easy to jump an electric vehicle, uh, to hire one, uh, no trouble at all. And that we have good mobility, uh, not metal box mobility stuck in our cars, mm -hmm. uh, our private domains, uh, and so on. I would hope for more sharing and a more equal uh, society in Scotland to share some of our riches that we have in Edinburgh with other parts of Scotland as well and to be um, reoccupying parts of rural Scotland um, which are well connected and well served and less all magnet drawn to the southeast of Scotland mm. um, and overcrowded like uh, rats in a pack rats in a cage. I hope that we could move to a slower pace of life, a four-day week, a 20-28-hour 20, a week, mm. a universal basic income. These are just a few of the things in my, in my dreams. Yeah. Wow, that sounds, yeah, utopian. That sounds great. Um, hopefully we can make at least some of that happen in the next 10 years. Thank you so much, David. I feel like you've given a very thorough description of Transition Edinburgh and the goals and what we're working on. So, yeah, thank you. It's been lovely speaking with you, Mary. Thank you for your interest. <laughs> no, no worries. Wow, that has taught me so much that I didn't know about Transition Edinburgh and its history. It's great to know the work this non-profit has been doing for so many years to tackle climate challenges at a grassroots level. If you are interested in being involved, you can find some links in the description for this episode. This has been Climate Emergency. Thank you for listening.